Good morning. Um, thank you for joining me. Uh, before we get started, uh, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us. Father, remind us of these gifts that you continually bless us with that we don't deserve. Help us to use these gifts to glorify your name in all things. Father, let this message be from you. I ask that you speak to our hearts, Father, that you change the way that we think, the way that we think about you, and reveal to us more about yourself through your word. Father, help my any opinions or presuppositions that I have about you be removed today so that your word and your truth and your gospel might be proclaimed. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, this morning um, we're going to be going through a few different passages, um, one of which is, uh, I'm going to go ahead and tell you what they are. Uh, we're going to go through John chapter 3. We're going to be in Romans 9. We're going to be in First John um, chapter 4, chapter 3, really, chapter 2 and 3, um, and then First Peter. Um, so today what we're going to be talking about is God's love. So the question that I want to ask today and that I want us to be able to answer in the future is, does God love everyone? Now, the answer may surprise you. Now, I was told recently that it is above my pay grade to try to understand the mind of God, and I think that that is extremely inaccurate. As a Christian, it's not only my desire, but also my obligation to better understand who God is. And if I am not constantly seeking God and constantly seeking to better understand his character and his attributes, then I am doing a poor job of trying to conform more and more to the image of his son. You see, the gospel actually begins with our understanding of the nature of God. We have to be able to accurately answer the question, who is God? So one of the most common characteristics and descriptions that gets used of God or to describe God is love. We hear such things as God is love. Um, then we also hear things like God loves you just the way you are. God's love for you is reckless and God loves everyone. But my question is, are those statements biblical? Because today I want us to examine this defining attribute and characteristic of God and answer that question, does God love everyone? So before we can answer that question, we must be sure that we rightly understand what love is. In the English language, we may use one word that has several meanings. So in this case, let's, let's talk about the word love. I can say that I love my wife, but I, I may also say that I love cheeseburgers. Now, does that mean that I feel the same amount of affection for cheeseburgers as I do my wife? Well, certainly not. But I would challenge Christians in America today that most of them, and most of us, I should say, equate this same word to God inaccurately in a very similar sense. Now, some people would say, well, hold on just a second, because John 
what does John 3.16 say? It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So John 3.16 right there says, For God so loved the world. So he loves everyone. Well, last week I told you and I explained that when reading scripture, there are always three things that we must consider. And those three things are the author, the audience, and the context. And most of the time when this passage, when this verse in particular is quoted, we neglect that our author here, who is Jesus Christ, is speaking to his audience, which is Nicodemus, who is a Jew who believes that salvation was only for the Jews. But aside from that, those same individuals fail to finish this passage. So instead of pulling one very most the most popular verse in the Bible, instead of pulling that out of scripture and really out of context, let's read it in its context. So understanding that Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, who believes that salvation is for the Jew and the Jew alone, Let's see what Jesus says. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. It is because that verse has been taken out of context for so long that the world really has a skewed view of who God is. You see, this verse being misrepresented by well-meaning people, Christians, people who are followers of Jesus Christ, who are misrepresenting this verse. This is the reason why people ask the question, if God loves all of us, then why would he send any of us to hell? Why would he send any of his children to hell? The simple answer is that he doesn't. God does not send his children to hell. Now, if you will pay attention and you will remove your your own pre, preconceived notions or opinions out of this, you will begin to see that the problem here is not with God, but it is with the individual's understanding of who God is. You see, because they believe Because they have been told for so long that God loves them unconditionally, just as they are. So then it is unfair for God to send anyone to hell. And if he does, then he is somehow unjust. But you see, when we fail to understand the context then we cannot accurately and fully understand the scripture itself. The same is true for the love of God. The love of God must be explained 
and must be expounded on. Because we may be talking about something different. God's love. We must be careful not to open the word of God with any preconceived notion or presupposition that we may have about God's character because it may be flawed. You see, it's, it's, it's really not any different than this. Imagine that you walk around your whole life wearing a broken pair of glasses. Everything that you would see would be flawed because your vision was somehow impaired from the very beginning. So you may argue to the death that something appears one way when you never stopped to analyze or to examine the lens in which you see things. So instead, we should be examining the lens in which we view things to be sure that it isn't flawed so that we can see things with clarity and truth. This is exactly how we are to, to um approach the scriptures we are to approach the scriptures first by making sure that our lens is not flawed because i will tell you everything that 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 i teach everything that i preach comes from a josh viewed lens to an extent there are things in the scripture that might be revealed to me that may not be revealed to you and vice versa Now, I don't know why God works that way, but he does. He chooses to. That's why. So we must be careful that we don't try to force a viewpoint that may not necessarily be there. So here's the question then that I've, I've gotten asked after this. So, Josh, are you saying that God doesn't love everyone? To which I answer, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about it? Because before we go into it, wouldn't it be true that if I can show you evidence in just one place where God hates someone, that if he even hates one individual, then it is, it is then evident that he does not love everyone. Wouldn't that be true? Let's look at Romans nine thirteen. It says, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now this was scripture being referenced in the book of Romans, but it was referencing back to Malachi. And this is God who said, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So, If God hates even one, then he can't love everyone. But again, we need, uh, I don't want anyone to misunderstand me. We need to understand, does God really mean hate? Does he really mean that he hated Esau? Well, Jesus Christ even tells us in the gospel of Luke that we must hate our father and mother in order to be called his disciple. So yes, he does. He does mean hate, but not in the way that we think. So, so hear me out. This goes back to our understanding of love. Our understanding of love and hate could mean something different than what someone else means. So briefly, 
the word hate does not simply mean that you wish someone was dead. But obviously, if you wish someone was dead, you hate that person. So what, what does this biblical term hate mean then? It means to consider less or some say to prefer. So when God says that he loved Jacob but hated Esau, it does not mean that he wished Esau was dead. It means that he considered Jacob and, and did not consider Esau. He preferred Jacob to Esau. So, so when he considered Esau less, he considered him, not, not necessarily value-wise, but he considered him less. So we know that God does not want us to hate our parents, right? When Jesus says you're to hate your mother and father if you want to follow after me, he doesn't literally mean to hate them, uh, to hate them in the way that we use that word, okay? But he does expect us to prefer him over them. Clearly then, there are those that God prefers over others. And before you cry blasphemy, think of this in a very personal way. You see, you may love your brother, but is it, but is it the same kind of love that you have for your children? And you may love your children, but, it, but is it the same kind of love that you have for your spouse? And for those of you who have been born again, you may love your spouse, but is it the same kind of love that you have for Christ? Are these loves held to the same degree? Clearly not. So when we say love, we must clarify what it is that we mean because there is a difference. There is a difference. So is love, is it merely a feeling of affection that we have for someone? Because if it is, then that love is fleeting. That's an emotion. And emotions ebb and flow. So if you love God in that way, then you might love him now and you might hate him 10 minutes from now. But clearly that's not what that means. So, and and people say, well, God does love the sinner. He just hates the sin. Show me that in scripture. Because you know what? I can show you in scripture. Or I'll say this. I will ask the question. If if God loves the sinner and hates the sin, then why does he send the sinner to hell and not the sin? We must approach love from a biblical perspective rather than try to change the biblical character of God. This is what has has happened today in America, in churches all across the country, all across the world, is that instead of, of reading the scriptures from the right perspective, understanding that your understanding is most likely flawed, and it, at least it was prior to your salvation. So you have to be able to keep that in check. But instead of approaching the scriptures... As truth, we will read something that is offensive or difficult or challenging. So in order to not contradict what the word says, so that we will not remain or so that we won't be inconsistent in some way, we then just try to change 
the biblical characteristics of God, and that is idolatry. Now, R.C. Sproul, he goes into depth about the three ways that theologians speak um, speak on love, uh, the love of God in particular. He says uh, the first is God's love of benevolence, which is where God, uh, it's God's will. God's will for is good for everyone. Now, meaning that his benevolent love ultimately and absolutely is for good, that we know that God's plan and God's will is ultimately for for good. And then you have God's beneficent love, where God gives benefits to people, whether they are believers or non-believers. Um, you know, the scripture tells us the rain falls on the just and the unjust. So we have to, we understand that his beneficent love, that, that all people can benefit from the love that he's given us through his creation and other things, principles, right, that, that non-believers use to this day, but still benefit them. So what we're going to talk about today, though, which is the most important consideration of God's love, and that is the love of complacency. Now, let me explain with that. When we think of complacent, we think of lazy and lethargic and, you know, good for nothing. That's not what this means. This is the the love of complacency is a filial love that God has for the redeemed. Filial meaning this is the same type of love that a father has for his son. So that love is first directed to Christ and then to all who are in Christ. And that love, that is the love that leads to salvation. And that love is not something that God has for everyone unconditionally. Now, there are few things in this world more dangerous than preachers preaching that God loves people unconditionally because this message that is heard or the message that is heard by the people who hear that is there are no conditions. I can continue to live just as I am, uh, living in full rebellion against God, and I have nothing to worry about because there aren't any conditions that that I have to meet. God loves me unconditionally. I don't have to repent. I don't have to come to Jesus. I don't have to leave my life of sin. No conditions. No strings attached. God loves me just the way I am. And he's glad that I turned out so good. You know, sometimes we close our eyes to what the Bible says frequently about God's posture towards those who refuse to repent. Because the Bible tells us that God abhors the wicked Now, that is strong language. God says he abhors, he detests the wicked who are impenitent or those who show no true remorse for their sin. It is very dangerous and it is completely untrue when we tell people that God loves them unconditionally. God is angry against the wicked every day and justly so. And every unrepentant sinner is exposed every second to the fury of God's wrath, as Paul tells us in Romans 1 and really through the entire book of Romans. 
There is no real understanding of the good news apart from the bad news. Now, I don't want anyone to misunderstand me. I am not saying that our salvation is somehow dependent on something that I do because it's not. It's, our salvation is entirely dependent on Jesus Christ and, the, and his work and his person. That's it. But he does require us to repent because without repentance, there can be no true salvation. But Christ came into the world, a world that was already under the universal sentence for rejecting God. And God has made himself so evident and so manifest. And he's manifested himself to every human being. But our nature is so fallen that we don't want God in our thinking. We don't want him in our lives. We, we don't want God in our minds directing our every move and word. We want to win people to Christ so much that we'll do everything we can to hide the reality of the wrath of God from them. We'll try to, we'll try to bring them under a safety blanket, hiding them, blinding them from, from God's wrath. We don't tell them that every moment that they refuse to repent, that they are heaping up wrath against the day of wrath. And because we don't tell them, people today aren't afraid of the wrath of God. Because instead, what do we tell them? We tell them how God can enrich their lives, how God can heal their sickness and give them riches and favor with their boss. But Paul says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade them. It's a fearful thing. You know, I, uh, I, I actually, at work years ago, I, I have to wear these safety vests, and I'll write scripture on the back for a few reasons, but a lot of times it, it provokes questions. And one of the verses I had on there was the, uh, the, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And someone asked me, you're a Christian and you fear God? I said, absolutely, I fear God, because it is terrifying to know that you are going to fall into the hands of the living God. A sinner who truly repents of his sins understands and is terrified of his condition. Now, for many people, myself included, what drove me to the gospel is the understanding that I was on my way to hell. So if we're going to stand on ceremony and platitude and say we need to take a stand as Christians if we're going to call a nation or our individual families to righteousness then the preaching must drastically change God's love for you as being recognized as one of his children is conditional based on your repentance so how do we know this let's look over to 1st John we're going to start in chapter 2. We're going to read verses 29 through into verse 3 through verse 10. It says, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. 
Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has hope in him, has this hope in him, purifies himself just as he is pure. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin, and whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. The scriptures make a clear distinction. First, you know, John, our writer John here in 1 John makes a clear distinction that there is a difference between the children of God and the children of, of Satan. It's those who practice righteousness and unrighteousness. And those who are truly repentant, those who truly repent of their sins and not just say, I'm sorry, but have turned from their wicked ways and understand that their thinking about reality has been wrong. And they've turned from this and they rely solely on him will practice righteousness. And it shows that those people are children of God and that those who do not do that are not. So does God love everyone? Yes and no. I told you the answer might surprise you. God loves everyone in the sense that he has demonstrated his love through his son. And he loves everyone in the sense that all men everywhere, not just the Jew, are given the opportunity to receive the inheritance of his son by trusting him with their eternal salvation. God so loved the world, all peoples, that he sent his son, the Christ, to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect sinless life. And this Jesus that was there at the beginning of all things, at the beginning of creation itself, he knows you and he loved you enough to give you the opportunity of salvation through him and him alone. And this Jesus willingly gave up his life, paid the price for our sin, bore the wrath of God that we could not bear up under. And he died the death that you deserve. On the third day, he defeated even death and he rose, later ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father. And he loved you enough to humble himself to come down, to lower himself in the form of a man 
in order that he could be the propitiation required for the remission of our sins. So does God love you? Absolutely yes, because without his love and without his love demonstrated through his son, we would have no hope. But have you experienced the fullness of his love, of this love? Have you experienced his love personally to the same degree that he has given to his one and only begotten son? Because God does not love everyone to the same full extent that he does his own children. This love. This is the love that is evident through the completion of your salvation. If you have put your faith completely in Jesus Christ and in him alone, if you have trusted him fully with your eternity, if you have repented of your sin, it is God's promise that the good work that he began in you, he will finish. So for those of us that, that sometimes struggle with our confidence in our salvation, have confidence in the one whom you trust and in the security of your salvation because we are told in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This, Peter here is talking to, his, to God's children, not to everyone, but to God's children who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This, this is the love that, that he has for his children. This is what this love we are discussing, we are talking about today looks like. It is pure, it is undefiled, it is holy, it is infinite, it is eternal, but above all, it is perfect. So God does love you enough to send his son to give you the opportunity to come and be called a child of his. But he will not deal with everyone equally that love 
the expression of that love and the extent of that love will not be shared universally. And if you have been born again and you you struggle with how could God really love somebody like me? Have faith, have confidence that what he says is true that he will bring it to completion and that we will face trials and we will struggle. But have confidence and faith knowing that it has nothing to do with you and that our salvation relies solely on the one who's perfect, the one who died sinless and arose in a glorified body. It's in him we trust. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this day. We thank you for this message. Father, remind us of your love and the extent of your love. Help us not to use that word fleetingly. Help us not to misuse it or misappropriate it in some way. But show us that your love is is not like ours, that it's perfect, it's patient, it's undefiled, it's pure, it is holy, and it is eternal. Father, we know that your way is not just good, but it is perfect. We ask that you constantly change us to conform more and more to the image of your Son, who has demonstrated your love for us on this earth and on the cross. It's in his name, the name of Jesus Christ, that we ask and pray these things. Amen.